Let's stand together. As we hear God's word spoken to us for our edification. Hear God's word. Therefore, I urge you, other translations, I beseech you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, or again, another translation would be reasonable, act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That sends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. So this is another request. Someone asked me to preach on worship um, as one of the requests of this, this morning. I'm doing so uh, per that request. All right, so if I've heard it one time in my Christian life, I've, as the old saying goes, I've heard it a thousand times. I don't need to go to church to worship God. Maybe you've heard that before. I can worship wherever I am. Ever hear that? There's a variation of this idea, too, that says the woods or the beach or the golf course, fill in the blank, is my cathedral. The other side of the spectrum, we have believers who take the lion's share of their time and energy and they spend it on that one hour to two hours on every Sunday morning when we meet for public worship. Such people are more concerned that, oh no, somebody put a nativity scene up on the Lord's table than they are with how they treat other believers throughout the week. Now both extremes that I just mentioned reflect an aspect of the truth concerning the worship of God through Jesus. The one side is right about worship being much broader, much deeper than only a few hours on Sunday morning during public worship on the Lord's Day. And the other side, on the other hand, is also right when they want us to make sure that when we gather together in the name of Jesus for public worship, that our worship is directed by God's word and not our imaginations or our desires or our own preferences. So there's truth to both sides. What we're going to see this morning is really simple. Should be a pretty fairly brief message, and that's this. Worshiping God is more than going to church on Sundays. But it's not less than that. That's the message. It's more than just going to church, but it's not less than going to public worship. And we're going to look at the first thing. First, it's more than just Sunday morning worship services. Now let's get us focused here. I figured let me just get a good pithy definition of what worship is, right? We always use the word, we talk about it. Well, Robert Rayburn puts it very succinctly for us. He says this, worship is man's means of ascribing to God that adoration, reverence, praise, love, and obedience of which he sincerely believes God to be worthy. That's what worship is. It's from the heart. You sincerely believe worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. 
In other words, worship is simply giving God the glory, the honor, the adoration, and the praise he deserves for who he is in and of himself, for his works of creation, for his work of redemption, and for his work of what uh, Titus was looking for the word, his work of providence. Where you were saying coincidence, which I always say God incidents a lot of times. It's in other words, God's at, he's work, his work in our lives now, navigating and guiding and working actively in our lives. And that's what worship is all about, adoring him, giving him the worth, as it were, proclaiming his worth for those things. Now, in Old Testament times, before Christ came as our once and for all final sacrifice, right? Uh, we're going to see that in Good Friday, Tetelestai, it is finished. Before he did this, God ordained temple worship. You're going to be seeing that in the book of Exodus. It's one of the reasons we go through Exodus, so you can see these Old Testament scriptures that the New Testament scriptures expounds on and uh, develops for us and, and how Christ fulfills it. But in the Old Testament, God ordained temple worship, complete with a prescribed priesthood, with sacrifices, with ceremonial rites. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, both our corporate and individual worship has been completely transformed. It's taken out of the realm of temple and shoebread and these interesting things that, that are a little bit odd to us because we live in New Testament times. And it's taken right down to earth into the marketplace, as it were, into the everyday lives in which we live. Look at me, look with me again at Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Notice what Paul's doing here. He's taking the language and the concept of Old Testament and tabernacle worship off its hinges completely and rehanging it. Notice the words he uses here. Worship. Holy. Service. Sacrifices. It's reminiscent of the temple. And what he's saying is that since Jesus is our final, once for all sacrifice for our sins, we no longer have to come and approach God with a bloody sacrifice at hand, in hands. Because Jesus offered himself as that sacrifice. Once and for all. Now, I don't have to tell you, I shouldn't have to tell you, that if you know Romans at all, for 11 chapters, Paul has been expounding the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That God has saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He is our propitiation, which means he averted God's wrath for us on the cross. He is our atonement. It's through his faith in his death and resurrection that we now can come to God freely. We have free access. And God has poured this all out upon us by his grace. It's not by anything we could do. And so what does he say? He simply says, on the basis of those mercies so freely given, he says this, we should offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, it's only reasonable. The only reasonable response to what God has done for us is to worship him through using our bodies as a living sacrifice. 
That's what he's saying here in the text. In other words, it's no longer exercised in the context of a physical temple. But now this offering of our bodies as a sacrifice, since we don't need to offer up any other sacrifices because Jesus did it for us, this is seen in our everyday lives at home, at work, at play. That's where we worship. John Stott puts it this way. What, however, is this living sacrifice, this rational spiritual worship? Now listen, he really puts it succinctly for us. It is not to be offered in the temple courts or in the church building, but rather in home life and in the marketplace. That's what worship is. And that's where we worship. That's the practical outworking of grace received. Worship given by, listen, consecrated lips. Not just in church, but when you're with your friends, when you're with your buddies, when you're at work, when you're at home. Consecrated tongues, consecrated hands, feet, feet, excuse me, feet, ears. Remember an old song we used to sing uh, when I was just first saved. These are holy hands. He's given us holy hands. He works through these hands, and so these hands are holy. And then it goes through. These are holy lips. These are holy eyes. These are holy ears. And you get the point. One more quote from Stott. He says this, Our feet will walk in his paths. Our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring healing. Our hands will lift up those who have fallen and perform many mundane tasks as well, like cooking and cleaning, typing and mending. Our arms will embrace the lonely, the unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed and our eyes will look humbly and patiently toward God. What Paul is saying is, that's how we ascribe to God glory and worth and honor and adoration. It's not just through singing on Sunday morning or praying with God's people. But it's also through giving our bodies, of our bodies as living sacrifices, as worshiping as a way of life. And you've noticed I, I kind of use the word spiritual and I use the word reasonable here because it could be translated either way. When Paul says, this is your reasonable act of worship, the word there could also mean spiritual. But basically what, what Paul is saying is it's only reasonable in light of God's amazing mercy that's been shown to us in Christ that we uh, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. But Paul, I want to point out one other thing about this. There is another aspect about our worship as a way of life, and that's found in verse 2. Look at verse 2. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to mention it. He goes on to say, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, we are not to take our mental cues from the fallen world of men that we live in. Rather, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's where renewal begins, right here. We're to take our cues from the one who loved us and who gave himself for us. Acceptable worship, now listen, if you haven't been paying attention, listen to this. Acceptable worship is both consecrating our bodies and our minds to God. We are not to put, take our minds and put them on the shelf. 
in our walk with God, in our worship of God. We are to worship Him with all our hearts, with all our bodies, as it were, and with all our minds, the way we think. See, here, the Phillips translation puts it this way. I always love the way they put it. Um, Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. So you're going to go out today, as soon as you leave from those doors, maybe even before, and the world is going to continually try to squeeze you to fit into its mold. That's what it does. And what Paul is saying is, don't let it. So then what's the other option? It's not just a negative thing, but instead, let your mind be renewed. That's how your life will be transformed. We need to look at things the way God does. We need to see, and this word has come up a lot in my life lately, uh, God has been showing me, we need to have perspective. You know, perspective is kind of like when you look out in the bigger picture, you go, oh, now I see how everything relates. When you don't have perspective, you're stuck in that one little thing. You're in that loop. You know, that time loop like those movies where you're like, the day never ends. It keeps starting up. No, you pull back and you get God's perspective on these things. You start to think, as it were, his thoughts after him. It's then, Paul says, that you will be metamorphosized. That's what the word means in the Greek. Transformed. And it's only done through the Spirit and the Word of God. That's what transforms our minds. Renews our minds, excuse me. Because notice what Paul says. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. How will you know the word, the will of God if you don't know the word of God? If it's not what's helping you in your perspective. If you're not seeing things the way God sees things. We have to come to terms with this radical, holistic view of worship. The kind that pleases God where our bodies and minds are given to him wholly day by day at home and at work and at play and at recreation and in ministry as well as in public worship. Because then what Paul is saying is this aroma will be pleasing in God's nostrils. His pleasing will and it will be pleasing to him when we worship him as a way of life in the way that he's described here. In Romans 12. And not only will we be transformed, but the rest of Romans 12 tells us we will be a transforming influence in the society, in the world, in the home. We don't have time to look at that, but please, I know as pastors, go home and read the rest of Romans 12, but do it if you're curious. I hope you are. And you'll see how Paul outlines what that worship would look like in a regular basis for us. Now, at the end of our worship service, um, we don't have it. Um, we don't have bulletins anymore. But when we used to, um, and when we we used to do it up here as well on the slides, we would say when we had the benediction, the blessing at the end, we would say God sends us, blesses us, and sends us out to serve. Notice, so even in our worship services, what we're saying is it's after the service that God sends you out to worship Him. By the way, that's what the word service, I didn't mention that earlier. That's what the word service here in the text means. It means the service of the temple that Paul uses for worship here. But worshiping God with our minds and our bodies as a way of life does not in any way, shape, or form contradict or pit itself up against God's command for God's people to come together, especially on the Lord's Day, to worship Him corporately and publicly. It's not an either or, it is an absolute both and. And that's the second and last thing I want to point out this morning. 
Worshiping God is more than going to church on Sunday mornings, but it's not less. That's the second point. It's not less than that. So, Acts 2, verse 42. If you've been walking with Jesus for any time, you've heard this verse at least a few times. The day of Pentecost, Peter preaches a fiery sermon. Thousands get saved. Boy, the church planners are green with envy on that day. But this is what we find out about the church. The Bible explains it this way. They devoted themselves, that's the new converts, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Those are elements of corporate worship. When God's Spirit used the preaching of the word to convert thousands, the new converts didn't need a command, now you need to go uh, uh, to church, and now you need to gather with God's people, you need to hear God's word preached, you need to pray to God. They didn't need that command. Once they were saved, they flocked to public worship. They devoted themselves to these things because they had just found out the great news that God devoted himself to them in the person of Christ through his death and resurrection. And they could not get enough. Many of us, hey, we, we've had that experience. I remember as a new believer, you couldn't keep me away from church. And I'm telling you right now, it wasn't the music. God bless my church. Hope nobody was li- from back then is listening. But it wasn't that. I was hungry. I needed God. I needed his people. I needed his means of grace. And it wasn't long before the new church eventually did have to be exhorted to not neglect the gathering of themselves together. The the thing they used to do supernaturally, as it were. We're going to turn to Hebrews 10. You all know it, verses 24 and 25. And this is what the writer of the Hebrew Christians, Jewish believers, wrote. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day is the day of Christ, by the way. Because it's in corporate worship that we give and receive the encouragement that we need to continue to worship as a way of life throughout the week. And how? It's through the apostles' teaching, the word of God, through prayer, through fellowship, through the sacraments of the Lord's Supper, which we're having next week, by the way, together. In public, that is corporate worship, we call upon the name of the Lord together in prayer. We sing his praises. We listen intently to the preaching and the teaching of his word. We give of our tithes and offerings. We partake of the Lord's Supper together as he commanded us to. And we minister to one another through the fellowship of the saints, exhorting and encouraging one another. That's how we start off our week, the first day of the week when Jesus rose. Now, these verses in chapter 10 of Hebrews... Um, they're often um, used when we, we, we have to address folks who have been missing from worship, right? These are the verses we go to and we say, hey, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And we definitely do that. But very often, or, or very rarely, I should say, do we a- actually look at the context of where these words are found. And that's what we're going to do with the rest of our time, the last few minutes we have together. Uh, we're going to take a, a, a little look at the context 
uh, where we find these words about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And I'm just going to summarize some of the verses uh, just for time's sake. Okay, is that good this morning? Let's just do that. So in 1014, he writes this. By one sacrifice, that is the sacrifice of Jesus, God has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's a gospel bomb. That's once and for all through the death of Jesus, God has made perfect forever those who are being made every day more and more holy. That's the hope that we have as believers. That's the Christian hope that God, that Jesus brought us to God through his once and for all sacrifice. That's the gospel. Amen. So what's our response? Hebrews tells us this in chapter 10. We should respond this way. First of all, verse 22, we need to draw near to God because Jesus made the way. In other words, go into his presence in prayer. Next, that's in verse 22. Next, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Verse 23, our response is hold on. Do not give up. Thirdly, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. In other words, spur one another on to worship during the week as a way of life. And lastly, the one we're focusing on, verse 24, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, why does he bring up making sure we still assemble with one another and not make it a habit to not do so in this context? That's the question. Well, the, the Hebrew, the, the context of, of Hebrews 10, and as a matter of fact, the whole book of Hebrews is about, it's in the context of God's people, Jewish believers in particular in this instance, who were in danger of apostatizing, of not persevering, of leaving Christ, leaving the faith, going back to Judaism without Jesus. That's the danger. They were in danger and giving up of giving up on the hope because of two things. Because the world was persecuting the snot out of them. And secondly, the world was alluring them with all the promises and the blessings that they say that they have if they will just cave in and do what the world says. That's what was going on here. They were paying too much heed to the promises and the punishments of the world and not enough heed to the promises and the warnings of the word. That's what was going on. That's the context. So what God's word is saying here in this context is that one of the indispensable vital ways that we are enabled to persevere in the faith as it is in Christ Jesus is through corporate worship. Through gathering and assembling of ourselves together. The word there is the same word that comes from the word synagogue, to assemble for worship. It's there that we are encouraged with the promises and the warnings of God, not of the world. To put it to put it negatively, as the writer does here, when we make it a habit to forsake the assembly, assembly of ourselves together, it's a warning sign 
It's a spiritual red flag that we are beginning to depart from the hope that we have in Christ and from Him. Listen, what's one of the first things that we see when people start drifting away from the truth of the gospel? What's one of the first practical ramifications of that? They drift away from church, from worship. That's a fact. You start seeing it. It's a sad thing. The call to persevere in faith comes with a strong call not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but rather in the positive side, rather to encourage one another all the more day as we see the day of Christ's coming, it's getting closer and closer. See, sometimes we act like, well, we needed church when we were young believers. That, we kind of needed that encouragement and that help. But now I, kinda, I got it all together now. That's old hat. We don't need it like the newbies did. God says otherwise. He says you need it even more now than you did then. Because that day is even closer. And you want to be ready. You want to be found in Him. Trust Him. Living for Him. Now when we meet together for worship, we're encouraged by the public reading of Scripture. It's not, oh no, we have a long reading this morning. No, that's the, the, the reading of the Word is to encourage you. You're hearing God's voice pure. We come and we get a, a sobering sometimes. Okay, it's a sobering spiritual alignment from God's word. You know, when your car, you take your car in after you haven't taken it in for you, you've been neglecting it for years, and they go, you need a front end alignment. But it's also where we find the joy of the Lord in the gospel. We're, in, we're strengthened, we're encouraged by the good news of Jesus. We teach, this is what Paul says, we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as we sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts to God. Colossians 3.16 We approach the throne of grace together as Hebrews 21.22 puts it. Listen. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. You need to hear that. I need to hear that. God is faithful. He's going to finish what he started. When things look grim. When you're walking on the water for a split second, then all of a sudden you see the waves and you see the storm. And you start sinking because you're taking your eyes away from Jesus. He reaches his hand out and says, why'd you doubt? I'm faithful. I'm true. Now, I don't think I ever picked this up before in my study of Hebrews 10 here. But notice that the verses we just read are in the plural. Listen, since we have a great high priest, let us draw near to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Let us hold unswervingly. Where did you hear this before? Our Father who art in heaven. It's not my Father who's in heaven. It's corporate. We are to pray together in this, in this context. Our Father. Let us draw near. There was a member of a certain church. You may have heard this illustration before from me, but it's worth hearing again because it was convicting and encouraging to me. It's a member of a certain church who had previously uh, been attending services very regularly, 
but he just stopped going. And after some time, the pastor decided to visit him. It was a cold night, so the pastor found the man home alone, sitting by a blazing fire in his house. Guessing the reason for the pastor's visit, the man welcomed him in, led him to a big chair near the fireplace, and he waited. The pastor made himself comfortable, and he didn't say anything. In grave silence, he contemplated the, the playing of the flames um, and the fire and the burning logs. And after some minutes, he took the fire tongs. I remember those. Um, we used to have a fireplace growing up as well. And I remember those tongs. You'd get them all dirty. You'd get your hands dirty because as a kid I would touch them. But anyway, he took the fire tongs, carefully picked up a bright burning ember and placed it on one side of the hearth all alone. Then he sat back in his chair, still silent. The host watched this whole thing in, in kind of curious fascination. As the one lone ember's flame diminished, there was a momentary glow and then the fire was no more. It had been put out. Soon it was cold and dead as a doornail. So far, no words have been spoken. Just, at, just before the pastor was ready to leave, he picked up the old cold dead ember and placed it back in the middle of the fire and immediately it began to glow once more with the light and warmth of the burning coals around it. As the pastor reached for the door to leave, his host said to him, thanks so much for your visit and especially for the fiery sermon. He said, I'll see you in church next Sunday. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the gathering together of the saints where we are encouraged, where we are convicted, where we are uh, stirred up to love and to good deeds that we might worship you the rest of the week through the giving of our bodies as a living sacrifice through the renewing of our minds at home and at work and at play in service, wherever you send us. Jesus, remind us throughout the week that this is how we adore you. This is how we bring you pleasing sacrifices. This is how we, we show you uh, through our lives that you are worthy, that we love you, and that we bow down and we worship you. Both publicly privately, and throughout the week. Jesus, we pray that you would make us a, a people who worship you throughout every aspect of our lives and being. We pray it because it's our reasonable spiritual act of worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.